Now, this week after Easter, after a great time of worship, we're back in our Genesis series. If you've been with us before Easter, then you remember we've been in Genesis for quite some time now. We're going to be finishing that up, I think, at the end of next month or maybe beginning of June. And uh, today, we're in Genesis chapter 32, and it is a powerful passage, a powerful story about the time when Jacob, you know, the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, remember that guy, when he met God face to face. And initially when you hear that, you kind of think, well, I would really like to have that experience sometime. I'd really like to really encounter, really meet God face to face. When you read this passage, you might have second thoughts uh, about that. Uh, Because on the one hand, I think it will give us fear and trembling. On the other hand, uh, joy and delight, which is kind of what the gospel does in every circumstance anyway. Uh, Genesis 32, hear God's word, verses 22 and following. That same night, he, being Jacob, arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's a river. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This is the holy and perfect word of God. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you might open our hearts and our minds through this passage as strange as it may sound, as, as, as odd as this passage may be, that you might show yourself to us through it. You might reveal yourself, that you might cause us to worship, to be transformed. So, Father, lift yourself up in the midst of your word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the time that Jacob meets God face to face. And I think when he met him in this circumstance, it was nothing like what he had imagined. And my guess for many of us, for me for sure, as I studied this passage... To meet God like this is probably well beyond the force of my uh, imagination, probably in any capacity. This is the story, though, of Jacob's conversion. This is really the story of Jacob's conversion, and it happened not by, it it, it didn't happen in this like nice, lovey, mamby-pamby story. It happened when he was essentially assaulted by grace. And the passage really is going to show us three things. If we think we want to meet God, we think we want to encounter God, really have an experience with Him, what would it be like? What are the things that it would take? And three things here that I'm going to mention. Uh, One, that it will happen first by confrontation. Second, through weakness or in weakness. And third, 
through losing. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but I'll try to explain it as we go. So the first is if, if we meet God, if we actually have an inc- encounter with Him, it's going to be first and foremost, first time and every time, by confrontation first. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 22 and 24. Now, you remember Jacob's story. Maybe you remember a little bit of it, right? I mean, he's the guy that, that grew up and the, the promise was made to him, uh, but his father wanted to give it to his older twin brother Esau. And so what did Jacob do? He connived and manipulated and, and, and wrestled the, the blessing away from his older brother. And you remember what Jacob or what Esau said about Jacob. If you think about chapter 27, what did Esau say? He said, the next time I see Jacob, he's dead. The next time I lay my eyes on Jacob, after Isaac passes away, I'll let my dad die, I'll let that happen. But the next time I see him, Jacob is mine. And so this causes Jacob, as you remember, to flee, run off. He meets his uncle Laban, he gets married, he has two wives, has 11 kids. And now God has called him to turn around and go back and face it, right? To go back and face the issues that he's been running from all his life. And as he gets ready to cross that stream, he, he divides his company into two, two camps to try to separate him, keep him from Esau, sends his wife and kids al- a- along. And then, uh, in verse 24, he waits it out. He is alone in the ancient wilderness. I don't think we can even imagine what that's like. I mean, most, some of us, maybe a couple of us have maybe been camping by yourself in a remote, desolate place. But this is a, this is a wilderness under the stars. There's no Taco Bells around, no police departments, nothing like that. He is simply uh, all alone waiting to meet Esau, waiting to meet the man who has promised to kill him. And it is at this point in his life that God shows up. I mean, God's been there all along, but it's at this point in his life that God basically attacks him, jumps him in the middle of the night where he's ready to go to sleep and he's scared. God jumps on top of him and they begin to wrestle and they begin to fight. And the first thing this is showing us is that if we really want to meet God, if we really want to encounter him, we have to know up front, he's a little more dangerous than we ever really imagined. He's a little, in a sense, he's untamable. God is untamable. God is not safe. We like, to, we like to put God in a box and make him safe. But he's saying here, this is the God that wrestled with Jacob all night long in, 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 like, in a way of mortal combat. God cannot be tamed, and he is not safe. And so if we're going to meet God, if we're going to uh, encounter him, we'll have to be confronted by him first, and this is going to be personal. And, and so if we're going to meet God, if we're going to uh, encounter him, we'll have to be confronted by him first, and this is going to be personal. And it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be, in a sense, painful, personal and painful. It's personal. You see that in verse 24? I just talked about it. What does it say? Jacob was left alone. He's there. when he, God chooses that time when he's there alone by himself to do business with Jacob. When he's alone. When he has to handle it personally. When it has to be an individual thing. He can no longer rely on his family. He's heard, his family, heard about God all his life through his family, right? The promises to Abraham. The great promises to his grandfather. His grandmother becoming pregnant with his dad when she was 99 years old. You know, all the great things he's heard about through his family. Seen in community. Seen within the, the family of faith, so to speak. But he's never personally made it his own. It's never become personal. It's easy to see. It's easy to believe in God. It's easy to have hope in God in a group. It's easy to come and hear stories and to be filled with hope and joy about what God is doing in other people's lives and yet take that, not, take that home and never really make it a personal thing. Never really, make it, uh, never really see how it applies to you uh, personally. 
I think this is one reason we have so much uh, church hopping that goes on in our culture. You know, you go to one church and the experience is good for a while, and then it, it kind of fizzles out, fizzles out because there's not a personal reality of it. So you go to the next church, and then it kind of fizzles out because it's not a personal reality. So you go to the next church and hop around to eight different churches in ten years, and that, that's, that's one of the, one of the, the symptoms of that. Um, and so we have to be willing, I think, in a sense, we have to have community, we have to have corporate worship, all those things are super important. But we have to have also a knowledge that this thing is personal. There's something that has to happen, an encounter that has to happen between me and God personally. And so I challenge you to, to get along with God, to figure out what it is you believe, how it is do you know Him. Not, not what your wife believes, or your husband believes, or your kids believe, or your church believes. Those are all important. But get along with God. And I think this is extremely difficult in a, in a culture of distraction, a culture of background noise. Because I think the silence, to be alone like Jacob was, it, to be out in the wilderness by yourself, I mean, it's like Robinson Crusoe, you know, like to be alone like that is not, it's not boring, it's frightening. I think we're frightened. By that, I know I am. You know, to turn off all the Blackberries and the TVs and the radios and the iPods and the iPhones and all that stuff, and to get that, to turn that off and to be quiet and be alone for ten minutes would almost be like tearing your flesh apart uh, for some of us. It would be for me uh, quite often. But it's a personal thing. And as one pastor has said, it's it's possible to be overshadowed, surrounded by God, surrounded by Christ, but not penetrated, not penetrated personally. So we have to. It has to be. The confrontation will be a personal one. Uh, it'll also, in some senses, uh, be a painful one. I mean, look at this. Think about wrestling. Now, I don't know how many of you wrestled or boxed in like high school or college, or how many of you have ever been like in a wrestling match or something like that, or been in a fight. But they usually don't last very long because they are exhausting. They are painful. They are agonizing. I mean, you know, think about a heavyweight boxing boxing match. You know, by by round six. The guys are just hugging each other by then, right? Because, I mean, it's like they hug and they throw a little half-hearted blow and then the ref separates them and then they kind of come back together because they're so exhausted after just a few minutes of intensive fighting. But what does it say in verse 24? It says they wrestled until the breaking of the day. In other words, all night long. This is probably five, six, seven, eight hours of intense wrestling where Jacob thinks, this man's here to kill me and I'm wrestling for my life. That is, that is intense and it's painful now my question here is why does god choose wrestling like why 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 confront uh jacob with wrestling like why not just come tap tap him on the shoulder and say hey i'm god how about a hug or say like you know would you like a uh you know wouldn't that be easy uh would you like to come to my latest seminar jacob or you know could we have tea and crumpets together or something like that you know a more civilized way for god to to show up and confront him but i, I want to say a couple reasons why i think that wrestling is taking place here one is because this is it is wrestling where all the strains and strands of jacob's messed up jacked up life are all coming together right because jacob has been doing what jacob is the wrestler he's been wrestling all his life you know how moms tell stories about kids in their womb i mean I still remember stories about Jude and Sam when, you know, when, when they were in Amy's womb. And it's, and, I mean, moms know stories all the way up. Well, there's a story about Jacob and Esau, the twins, when they were in the, room, in the womb. It, the Bible tells us that 
uh, Rachel couldn't even get around very well because the two were always at each other's throat even then, which is pretty amazing. And then when they were getting ready to be born, Jacob's supposed to come out first, but they wrestle. And Esau gets out before him, but Jacob's clutching him by the heel, grabbing on the heel. And so they come out fighting. And then all of his life, he's fighting Esau. He's fighting Esau for the blessing fighting Esau for the birthright, fighting Esau for his purpose and his meaning in life, then fighting against his father who's ignoring him and, and, and not, not favoring him the same way he favors Esau. And then he goes to his uncle and he's fighting against his uncle in all his deceptive ways and the trading of wives. And I mean, all his life he has been wrestling and deceiving and conniving and therefore God shows up to wrestle. He says, if you want to wrestle, we can wrestle. You think all your life you're wrestling these other things. You didn't know that you were actually wrestling me. And so by wrestling, God is revisiting basically the most painful moments of Jacob's life. The, uh, ignoring from his father, the rest of the fighting with his brother, the having to flee and run away. By wrestling... God is basically putting his finger on and opening, exposing some of the most painful parts, the most painful having to flee and run away. By wrestling, God is basically putting his finger on and opening, exposing some of the most painful parts, the most painful part of the story of Jacob's life. What he's saying is that it actually, Jacob, it actually will take painful confrontation, not pleasant cuddling, to get to you, to waken you, to, 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 to get into your heart, to get into your life. And the truth is that God almost always has to wound us in order to wake us. He almost always has to wound us in order to wake us. Because see, what, what is he telling Jacob? He's saying, like, you're, wrestling, you're wrestling, for, wrestling for your life. When you're wrestling for your life like that, you have no other thought, no other focus, right? I mean, you're not thinking, gee, I wonder if I left the oven on. You're not, you don't have those kind of, you're focused intently on this wrestling match because it is for your life. And that is what God is saying, is that all these other focuses that you've had in your life and, and the things that you've been wrestling for, instead of that, he's saying, I am at the center you're engaged with me. God is showing himself to be the ultimate value in his life. All his life he had been wrestling for every other pursuit, every other thing that would fill him. But God is saying, I was the one, actually, that you should have been with. And so that is how it is through wrestling that God basically becomes the central reality, the central focus of Jacob's life because he can't focus on anything else. He's got to deal with it. And that's what God is saying is all these other things are on the periphery. But I am bringing you, I'm, I am showing you that I will only be in the center. And I fear that today we live in an age of kind of easy believism. It's kind of easy to believe in God, to believe in Jesus really uh, in our culture because of the way we look at him. Uh, Dorothy Sayers says this. She's a playwright, Christian playwright. Uh, she says, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the lion of judah we've certified him meek and mild and we've recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies in other words we've made jesus into a pet instead of a lion it's it's an age of easy believism it's it's we 
we want to believe in Jesus, but not really trust him. We want Jesus in our lives at times, but not really changing our lives. You know, we want Jesus to bless us, but not battling us. But here he's confronting. He's battling Jacob and saying, I will be at the center. This is why I think that in our day, people can read the Bible and go to church for 30 years straight, 40 years straight, and never, never change, never really grow. It's because they're not wrestling. They're not letting God come and confront them on the biggest issues of their life and their biggest questions, their biggest doubts, their biggest fears, their biggest pain. They're not letting God confront them on their view of uh, marriage or money or time or sexuality. They're not letting God confront them. If you don't let God confront you, if, you don't, if we don't have a God that can confront us, we don't have a personal relationship with Him, and we will likely never grow. And so if we meet God, if we encounter Him, it'll be first and foremost by confrontation. Uh, and then secondly, it'll be in weakness. What do I mean by that? Look how, the, look how the battle proceeds. If you look at verse 25, they're wrestling through the night, right? And what happens? The man sees that he did not prevail against Jacob. And so what does he do? He touches his hip socket and Jacob's hip is out of joint. Just with a touch like that, Jacob's hip is suddenly out of joint. The man that was, you know, wrestling around, you kind of need your legs when you're wrestling. And, and he basically takes the whole leg out of joint and so cripples him, in a sense, um, for life. That's what God does. And so God exposes in Jacob, really, uh, this, place, this place of weakness, but look what he's going to do with it. He, the weakness is not going to be left. It's going to be redeemed and renamed. The weakness will be redeemed and renamed. What does that mean? How does it work? Well, you see in, in verse 26, something very important happens. After the hip comes out of, out of joint, what does Jacob do? After hours of wrestling, as soon as that touch happens, he recognizes, and it says this in verse 28, this is not a man. This is not some assassin sent by Esau. This is God himself. I'm wrestling with God because he felt the power. And this is the turning point, I think, of the whole story. Because why do I say that? Well, all night long he's been trying to wrestle the guy away, right? Because he thinks the guy's trying to kill him. Like if somebody broke into your house and you were wrestling with them, the only thing you want to do is get them out of your house or on their back or whatever. You know, you want to get them disabled. What happens here? When he gets disabled, the man tries to leave, but Jacob won't let him leave. Instead, what does it say? He clings to him. I won't let you go unless you bless me. I won't let you go unless you bless me. See, all of Jacob's life, we, we said, just said, had been wrestling for what? For blessing, right? He, he wrestled the blessing away from Esau. He's always looking for the blessing, what we would call satisfaction, what we'd call fulfillment. He's always looking for, you know, beauty. And then his, his wife's situation got screwed up. You know, he's always looking for money and possessions. And then his, he had to leave and he couldn't take anything with him when he fled away from his family. So he's always been searching for blessing and satisfaction and fulfillment, but it was always out of reach. And for Jacob, here's who God was in his life. God was a means to the end of what Jacob wanted, wanted to get. He was not the end. He was the means to the end. Do you remember the prayer, uh, Jacob? Blessing and satisfaction and fulfillment, but it was always out of reach. And for Jacob, here's who God was in his life. God was a means to the end of what Jacob wanted, wanted to get. He was not the end. He was the means to the end. Do you remember the prayer G, uh, Jacob prayed in uh, Genesis 28? What does he say? He says, okay, Jacob prays, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, and if he will give me bread and eat, bread to eat and clothing to wear, 
that I can come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He has an if-then reality about God. In other words, it's a negotiation, God. If you can be this way, then I will serve you and love you and follow you. But if not, you're not my God. As long as we're at a point of negotiation with God, we haven't yet met him. We haven't yet encountered him. We have to wrestle. We have to wrestle. We have to bring to him our, our deepest pains and fears and questions and doubts. But when we get to the point of saying, no, you can't be my God unless you give me this, unless you provide this, unless this happens, Jacob realizes all the blessings he'd been searching for in life, all the fulfillment and satisfaction through his relationship with his dad, his wife, the beauty he was seeking, the money he was seeking, all that was futile in relationship to God. Now, instead of saying, thank you, God, for coming to visit me, now I can go out and get the blessing, he clings to the Lord and says, I won't let you go unless you bless me because you yourself are the blessing. That's what he's saying there. You yourself are the blessing. And in doing this, God has basically totally reoriented Jacob's life. It's a total redefinition of all the problems in his life and all the solutions. For years and years, Jacob thought, the problem in my life is that my dad ignored me as a kid. The problem in my life is that my brother is a jerk. The problem in my life is that my wives aren't living up to my expectations for me. My uncle cheated me and deceived me. I'm not getting the money and the things that I deserve. Those are the problems in my life. And you know what God says? I am the problem in your life. If you want to wrestle with someone, you, if you want to do business about those things, you have to do business with me first. You have to first and foremost do me. So he totally redefines the problem. You thought you were on your way to wrestle with Esau, but he met God and he had to do business with God first. And so God wounds Jacob to show him this great point. And I wonder about, for us, it's so easy for us to think that the biggest problem in my life is my boss or my financial situation or my children or my kids. I mean, I don't know. The, the biggest problem in my life is, is, is X, Y, or Z. And this intensive wrestling match shows us that God has got to redefine that. If we want to meet God, if we want to get a financial situation or my children or my kids, I mean, I don't know. The, the biggest problem in my life is, is, is X, Y, or Z. And this intensive wrestling match shows us that God has got to redefine that. If we want to meet God, if we want to encounter God, we have to see, we have to, we have to deal with him first. I don't say, you know, God, my problem is my brother. If you just deal with my brother, you make my life a lot better and we'd be easy. You and I would be on good terms. God says, I'll handle your brother. You, you let me take care of your brother. But you need to come, you need to meet me first. You need to wrestle with me first. I'm at the center of your life. And so we have to ask, is God the end of your life or is he just the means uh, to the end of your life? Is he at the center driving your dreams and your ambitions or is he on the periphery simply always affirming them? Where is he? What we find is that God uses the places in our story of greatest pain to open us to see him. Is God the end of your life, or is he just the means uh, to the end of your life? Is he at the center driving your dreams and your ambitions, or is he on the periphery simply always affirming them? 
Where is he? What we find is that God uses the places in our story of greatest pain to open us to see him, to open us to experience him, to open us to encounter him. He is using, he's redeeming our weakness in that sense. You know, my grandfather was um, sort of a farmer, and I used to work with him a lot in high school and in, in college. I used to uh, go and help him, and he would always, you know, he would always kind of give the directions, and I would drive the tractor and do different things. And um, one of the things that you'd always do before you plant any crops is, is you had to plow the field, right? And in South Carolina, we have this thing called red clay, and literally all the ground is made of red clay. It's kind of like the stuff that you would, you know, make pottery out of that's going to harden and dry in the sun. So we'd always kind of give the directions, and I would drive the tractor and do different things. And um, one of the things that you'd always do before you plant any crops is, is you have to plow the field, right? And in South Carolina, we have this thing called red clay. And literally all the ground is made of red clay. It's kind of like the stuff that you would, you know, make pottery out of that's going to harden and dry in the sun. So in a South Carolina heat sun, uh, it gets pretty hard. And the only way to, 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 to get it up and to actually plant anything that's going to grow. I mean, if you just go spread some seed on dry red clay, you're going to get zero crops, zero fruitfulness, zero production. Instead, you have to plow it, right? You have to plow it. So we would always, we would, I would get the tractor, put the plow in the back, you know, lower the lever, and you put the plow down. And if the plow is heavy enough and the tractor's strong enough, those sharp metal blades can sink into that clay and actually furrow it up, actually drive it up, actually churn it up and make it soft and malleable so that we can plant crops and it'll grow and be fruitful and produce that's what the plow does. It rakes through and it weakens the soil in order to make it productive, in order to make it valuable. And if we think of our hearts and our minds and ourselves like that red clay, we see the kind of work that God has to do. There will be times in our lives and I weakens the soil in order to make it productive, in order to make it valuable. And if we think of our hearts and our minds and ourselves like that red clay, we see the kind of work that God has to do. There will be times in our lives, and I, I tread lightly here, but there will be times in our lives that God will have to plow us in order to awaken us. That he will have to sink the, the hooks of the plow into our soil and literally furrow it, furrow it up so that we can be that we can grow we can transform we can be fruitful and really it's that's the only two options in life you can either have hardening pain or redeeming pain there is no those that have pain those who suffer and those who don't everybody does there's two kinds of people those who let the pain be a plowing experience to give fruitful soil and those who let the pain be a bittering experience to harden our hearts and the soil so that we can never encounter God. And what God is saying is, in the wrestling match, can I come? Do you give me permission? Do you give me that space? Do you give me that place to actually plow a bit, even when it's painful? And that's how God begins to redeem that pain. He tills it up and makes it fruitful in our lives. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, imagine you yourself, imagine yourself as a living house and, and, and you become a Christian and God comes in to rebuild the house. And at first, perhaps, you understand what God is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping up the leaks in the roof and so on. Now, you knew those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. 
But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building up a palace. He intends to come in and live in it himself. If you were to think right now about the most painful parts of your life, the scathing words, the searing tears, the difficult betrayals, the pinching loneliness, the utter grief and loss. If you were to think about those things, those places in your life, God is saying, would you bring those to me? Would you wrestle those out with me? Would you do business first and foremost with me? And actually, for most of us, at least for me, it it takes that to be able to grow in life. Theoretically, I would like to be a humble man. Theoretically, I would like to be a humble father and humble pastor and humble uh, uh, dad and and all that stuff. But I doubt that I'm going to become the humble man in the latest seminar. What I really need is to be humbled. And that will be the plow that will drive up soil in my life that will produce the fruit of humility. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What this passage is saying is that better to be wounded by God than to be kissed by your enemies. It's better to be wounded by God than to be kissed by your enemies because He redeems the weakness. He not only redeems it, He renames it. After a painful battle comes a painful question. They had a painful battle, and now God is going to ask him a question. Verse 27, what is your name? Now, I ask people that all the time, and it's not a painful question for them. But for Jacob, it was. Why? Because he's asking more. You think God doesn't know Jacob's name? He's asking more than that. What did Jacob's name mean? Liar, deceiver, cheater, fighter, swindler. He says, Jacob, tell me your name. See, to say his name, if Jacob says his name, it is to admit everything he is and and, and everything he was, all the swindling, all the cheating, all the lying, all the betraying, all the running and the striving. To tell God his name was to stop making excuses. It was to stop blaming everybody else in his life. It was, in a word, confession. It was, in a word, repentance. And in one word, in verse 27, he can mutter only that, one word, Jacob. I am he, the deceiver. It is true. To Jacob, it must have felt like tearing flesh to name aloud his inner sin and brokenness. It was the essence of pain, I'm sure. And I think what most of us, most people in our world, our culture fear today is that if they were to say that to God, if they were to tell God their name in that way, what they would receive would be not blessing but cursing. 
You're the deceiver, Jacob. Cursed are you forever and ever. But instead of the curse, God blesses and he renames. And in verse 28, he says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. See, the personal, unadulterated naming of your sin will always lead to the personal, unadulterated blessing of God and renaming of you and remaking of you in His image. So I would ask each of us, have you told God your name? When you hear Him, He's asking you your name. Have you told God your name? What would you say? Liar? Cheater, racist, perfectionist, anger, envy, jealousy. What, what would your name be? If you tell God your name, it will not lead to your curse, but to your blessing, to your forgiveness, to your healing, to the redeeming and the renaming of your pain. And it is the only way to meet God. You cannot encounter God. You cannot meet Him unless you tell Him your name, unless you repent, unless you confess and come to Him in that way. What is your name? So if you want to meet and encounter God, it will be by confrontation. It will be in weakness. And lastly, it will be through losing. What does that mean? Well, you notice that Jacob, he gets a wake-up blow, but he doesn't get the death blow. He gets a wake-up blow, not a death blow. Why? That doesn't surprise me all that much, but it surprises Jacob. He says in verse 30, he says, I'm calling this place Peniel, which means face of God, because I've seen God face to face, and yet what? My life was spared. He says, it's amazing. I encountered God. I saw him face to face, and my life was spared. He didn't drop the hammer on me. He didn't, he didn't blow me up. He didn't obliterate me. And if we ask why, I think we have to ask, well, what happened in the battle? Who won the battle? One of the most interesting questions about the passage is, who won? Who won the wrestling match? Actually, I think the answer is not that hard, but we don't want to accept it because he says twice in the passage, you have prevailed, Jacob. Jacob wins. Jacob defeats God in a wrestling match. How is this possible? How can the God of the universe be defeated by a mere human? This is the God of Genesis 1 spoke the creation into existence. How can he be defeated? How can Jacob prevail? Well, of course we know God could have won the battle. Just like he touched his hip and it went out of joint in, the, in a second. He could have won the battle. He could have obliterated Jacob. He could have come in power and glory and judgment and obliterated Jacob. He could have won the battle, but he would have lost Jacob. So what you see is that God is willing to lose the match in order to gain the person we know this from our, I mean, I have seven nieces and nephews, and I have two boys, and I love to wrestle, and wrestling is awesome. How do the kids, you know, every time I wrestle, the kids win. How do the kids beat a, a grown man? I mean, how can it happen? Well, of course, you know, I don't put my full force into it. I don't wrestle them with my full force. I don't, I don't hit them with full force. I don't put my full weight behind it. That's basically what God is saying here. And if you think now, this, is, this story has just gotten too unbelievable now. 
There's no way I can believe this. Do you expect me to believe that God himself took time out of heaven, came down in the form of a man, spent all night wrestling and sweating and bleeding, and then lost? Not only am I asking you to believe it, I'm saying that's the centerpiece of the entire gospel. It's exactly what Jesus himself did. Instead of being the tyrant, he was the victim. He came and sweated and bled in the form of a man, restraining his glory, restraining the full force of who he was, that he might not win that battle, but he might win us. That he could win through losing. He won the battle because he didn't use his full force. In fact, when he touches Jacob's hip, that word there is a word for descendants. He's saying, my, my, I'm giving you the blow of grace. I'm giving you the wound of grace. The wound of judgment will come to one of your descendants. The wound of judgment will come to one of your descendants. I can bless you now when you deserve to be cursed because I will later curse the one that deserves to be blessed. I can give you the full force of my grace because the full force of my judgment has fallen on Christ. I can assault you with my grace because I've assaulted Jesus with my judgment. 